I spent six years in New Delhi, and from New Delhi, I, I, um, I had the there was still still the civil war in Sri Lanka going on, so I covered that, and there was like war in Afghanistan that I covered. Then there was lots of stories from Pakistan. I went to, uh, I, I covered the um, Osama bin Laden story, so that was a very unique point in my career to be there at the same at the right moment in the the right time. That was just an amazing thing. To the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Ford. I'm your host Galileo, and today we're joined by a special guest, Agnes Tandler, a German foreign correspondent with a decade of experience reporting from places like India, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, and South Africa. Agnes has also lived in New Delhi for six years and spent four years in Dubai and another four years in Cape Town and Johannesburg. Agnes contributes with Japan Forward, and we catch up with her to talk about her career and her experiences in Japan so far. Thank you for having me. Um, in the past decade, I lived in places like New Delhi, Dubai, Cape Town, Kabul, and I spent most of the last year in Bangkok. So. Hokkaido is very different. It's safe, clean, calm, easygoing, but it's not really boring. When I, from my house, when I walk up the next mountain, there are bears up there. It's really wild already. Um, it's still in the city limits, but they are always in summer. We have signs um, there. And um, that makes it a really great place, just the difference that I experience now. And what I like about Hokkaido is also it's it's not your typical Japanese, stereotypical Japanese thing. Cherry blossoms, temples, you know, temple gates, Mount Fuji in the background. Hokkaido is really wild. It's a bit like Canada with better food and better weather. <laughs> So, um, to give you a perspective, like Hokkaido is like 83,000 square kilometers or 32,000 square miles. That's the size of Austria or, and with 5 million uh, people living there. So there's plenty of space to go around and it, it has a very different feeling from other places in Japan. Yeah, I like like yourself. For me, my one of my first places in Japan was actually Hokkaido. Oh, really? Yeah, and I think a lot of Why? people here. Aren't, for me, I was doing a homestay. And oh, okay. For a lot of people here on the call, I think Naito-san, Susan, Ed, and Ariel were interested. Like, uh, what what brings you to Hokkaido? Like, it's it's just a mysterious and magical place. Right now, you're probably going to experience the winter, which is you probably spend a lot of time indoors. But you know, we're, we we want we like to understand what what brings you to Hokkaido in the first place. Well, I spent a winter in Hokkaido. I had a I um I was invited by by um you know an art residency in a, in a, in, a, in a big park and it it took like 20 minutes from the from the station to walk up the hill and I was hoping I would have time to write a book and concentrate you know have a really like the winter as I know it from Europe, that Hokkaido winter is very different. It's uh, Sapporo is on the same latitude as Rome. It, it gets plenty of sunlight and sunshine, even in winter. So I was out every day. I loved the powder snow. I just walked for hours and it was, I never rode 
a single line of my book. <laughs> I just spent two months enjoying the snow. And I started to ski. So that was also a new experience to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to ask, though, um, because uh, you uh, are obviously a very seasoned and veteran journalist, and now we are in such a historical time with the pandemic, with your various re- uh, reporting that you've done across the world and so on, how has that compared with your experience? Unique because it's Hokkaido and Japan, but also unique because of the time. Mm, it's hard to say, because... Um, it's a good place actually for the pandemic. We get it's it, there's a lot of space we can go. There's a lot of outdoor to do. So in, in a way, I'm really far away from from a pandemic now. Well, Agnes, thanks for joining. You know, could you tell us about your uh, journalistic career? Because you know you're veteran journalist and you've been uh, a lot of places in Asia. Mm, I Japan, think it's so but- boring. <laughs> talk about my career (laughs) yeah but but i've joined the associated press in berlin i spent six years working for for the for ap i uh i went free i went as a freelancer to new delhi more or less at the suggestion of a friend saying like oh i have so much work why can't you come over and help me we could just we could have a good life here half of the work you're doing now and we still have enough money to survive so i just picked up my things and went so and that's how my my career as a as a foreign correspondent actually started and i had a four-year-old son at that stage he's now a bit older (laughs) and everybody thought I was like completely it was a complete mad thing to do but I just loved it it was maybe my best decision ever (laughs) that's great so so since then I've um I spent six years in New Delhi and from New Delhi I I um I had the there was still still the civil war in Sri Lanka going on so I covered that and there was like war in Afghanistan that I covered then there was a lot, lots of stories from Pakistan I went to uh, I, I covered the um, Osama bin Laden story so that was a very unique point in my career to be there at the same at the right moment in the the right time that was just an amazing thing for me and maybe one of my highlights to have covered that and been there seen the house and like yeah it's still it's still a, a really really exciting time i'm really happy i uh, i was there agnes were during those uh, various uh travels to those countries were you typically in the the front lines or near the front lines of some of these wars sure yeah but it's didn't really feel like it didn't really feel like that so much. So I don't want to say you know they were built, but we had like plenty of suicide attacks at mm. that time that we had to cover. Mm. So. Well, uh, you reported all those kind of war stories, conflict stories. Now, uh, the first story I think you wrote, uh, you were introduced by Makiko Akita, the editor of our. Uh, the related media, uh, the Serum magazine. And uh, the first story you wrote about uh, Japan for, for for us is about the whiskey and the Hokkaido yeah. beverage, right? And that was a really heartwarming and love story. I was so amazed to read that. So, so 
you know, so different what you wrote mm-hmm. in a conflict, conflict zone and now you're writing the cultural story. So could you mm-hmm. tell us about that? It's a nice change, really, really. Okay, you find very heartbreaking stories and touching stories in, in all kinds of places and in conflicts. And, you know, the human, those stories never change. A, a touching story is a touching story, no matter where it plays out. But, yeah, if I could go back in time, I would like to go to the 1920s, be in Scotland and marry a... Uh, Masataka Taketsuru had moved to Japan. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not an option. <laughs> but I was fascinated by, you know, I was fascinated by the story as well because, I mean, Japan was so remote and a place like Hokkaido was so remote, like for a Scottish woman to pack up her things and to move uh, That was like a bit like never seeing your home again, never meeting your family again. You'll be out. It's like you. It takes three, four weeks to get there by ship to from from Scotland to Japan. You couldn't fly. So I was really. That was really. Um, that was really an adventure and and a, and a love and an adventure story. Yeah. Just to follow, just to follow up on that, um, the title of your article was that the best whiskey you can never taste. So uh, obviously, the whiskey that you were tasting and uh, in, and talking about historically uh, is no longer available, sort of, to the international market. Can you tell us a little bit about um, sort of the the changes that happened over that? What you, yeah. what you discovered, yeah. Yeah, like in, in the past decade, unfortunately, Japanese whiskey has become so popular that um, especially the the age, um, like the, the 20-year-old, the 14-year-old, 10-year-old, they've all gone. They are not on the market anywhere. They still exist in bars. Like bars have stocked up on it, and like they are like they are on, they are going on private auction. But you can't really walk into a shop anymore and like buy buy them. So you can still taste them in Yoichi and in other decent bars, but they are they are gone now. It's it's quite quite sad that it's like due to the popularity of Japanese whiskey that nobody expected because I. I heard that before Japanese uh, whiskey makers were really inventing, they only invented the highball because they wanted to find some something to market. And now they wouldn't really need highballs to sell their whiskey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. Thanks for that, Agnes. Um, we've got some questions on... Uh, and we're also interested to know some of the food that you've experienced in Hokkaido. Could you tell us about maybe some of the stuff that you enjoy while you while you've been there? And you got some amazing photos of that food that are on our website. So so please talk about it. Ah, well, the food is in Hokkaido is is good, but the food is the food is good everywhere in Japan. But Hokkaido food is often you know very much geared to hard, long, snowy winter, like um, potatoes. I've uh, come to learn a lot about potatoes. So um, <laughs> apparently, 
in Japan, it's really important to know what type of potato you are. Like, for most people, a potato is a potato. Mm. <laughs> But mm. not in Japan, it's important to know what what type of potato you're looking for. So, uh, mm. so I wrote a story about like about uh, the Danchoku, you know, the, the most famous potato. But then you have like Inca awakening. You have like, yeah. you know, you have like, um, what is it? Uh, the really. red of the north. So very poetic names. And they all supposed to do different things. So one is for salad, one is for mash. So, um, and I visited this place and I think that's where you wanted. That's what you wanted. I visited a place that has just specialized in serving potato salad mm. in, uh, in ice cream cones. <laughs> oh wow! Mm. <laughs> and you can like it's it's highly customized, so you can choose the potato you want. Oh, wow. Then you go. Then of course, yeah. And then you can choose what you want with it. Like there's like two different more ingredients as you could like berries to make it sweet, or like you could have some salmon roe with it. So that is <laughs> so. That was that was quite amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, what what is your favorite one? Uh, here's an Inca awakening and shadow mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the ruby. Sounds really nice. And, uh, yeah, I like I like the sweet stuff, but because I now was there in the afternoon, so that was it, it was more like an ice cream thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like what is really famous about Hokkaido is like the famous soup curry and Genghis Khan. So every I think Genghis Khan is maybe more popular. Everyone seems in Bangkok, everyone seems to know what Genghis Khan is because they have they have they are like mangas about or about Hokkaido. So um so Genghis Khan is like grilled mutton, which is very delicious. So that is a really good winter stuff because you can grill it yourself. Mm -hmm. And then there's soup curry, of course. And um yeah, when I first came to Hokkaido, I was like soup curry. I spent six years in India. I'm not eating any curry. I've, I've, I've enough of curry. No. I'm trying to love soup curry and I'm trying to eat it like maybe every second day. <laughs> it's really good for lunch. It's it's uh, you know it's good before skiing and after skiing. So it's basically a, kind of a soup with grilled yeah with fried chicken and all kinds of fried vegetables. So it's very tasty. Uh, Agnes, would you would you generalize that um, people in Hokkaido eat less rice typically than the so-called normal Japanese uh, diet? I wouldn't really know. I think in generally, um, in general, uh, portions in Hokkaido are much much bigger. People also eat a lot of rice. There's a lot of rice coming with the soup curry, for example. Hmm. But uh, I think um, people coming from Sapporo to uh, Tokyo, they'll be disappointed to see the small soba portions. Generally, portions in Hokkaido are quite generous. People just love food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you reported on uh, a little bit earlier this year uh, in September or so on how the soup curry became a topic of conversation again when it was became known that uh, uh, Yoshihide Suga, the current prime minister, actually lost a lot of weight due to a soup curry diet. Could you tell us your adventure in sort of investigating this story? Yeah, that was, everyone was surprised because, first of all, it's not really, 
he eats like um, he eats it for breakfast, but you know that is a that is a lunch thing or a dinner thing. No one eats soup curry for breakfast, so that had had people like really thinking what. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the other thing is like I think no one has ever lost weight by eating soup curry because as I said, there's like people just eat a lot of rice with it, and he skips the rice maybe that's how it works that's how but i haven't i have eaten a lot of soup curry and i haven't lost anyone so. <laughs> 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 so, but the people were always saying yeah we can see soup curry is very healthy because it's like a good balance between the vegetable and like chicken and rice well that's it and from what I well, from what I know about soup curry as well, there's variations on like the medicinal value or medicinal types of soup curry, versus like your traditional soupy curry broth type. So maybe that's something to look into. Look into. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be it's very interesting. It's supposed to be like Chinese medicine. It's supposed to be like from Chinese medicine, but right. I'm not so sure. Like everyone has their own every curry shop. Every soup curry shop has their own recipe. So I'm not really sure if they're following med- medical advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's something. Yeah. yeah if you have time, maybe find some of these like med- yakuza. It's called yakuzen soup curry Um, it should be interesting for you so one of the things that you did aside from food was that you investigated the uh, aboriginal people of Hokkaido and uh, found the museum that was I think just about to open when you were there so can you tell us something about what you discovered and and, uh, how you learned about that well it was great to see that there's finally um, some place where there is uh, where Hokkaido pays tribute to the Ainu culture because the Ainu people have lived in Hokkaido for centuries and um, the culture got kind of pushed aside when Hokkaido got industrialized and uh, Ainu have mostly assimilated into like the Japanese population so you don't really see many signs of Ainu culture in day-to-day life in Hokkaido so it's great to see um, the museum does a lot on craft and it has a garden so I learned I I could go around and see the plants that Ainu people were cultivating. There were like Ainu dishes, like a kind of salmon stew that they that they were cooking. They so it was really good to um, see um, something like this um, conserved, and um, yeah, and I hope there will be more in the future. So Ainu language, Ainu poetry, Ainu songs. It's sad that there is. There is really not so much, as I said, in day-to-day life. So I hope that they, the museum will help to um, foster more of an understanding for culture. People can go to your story online and find out how to get there. I think the links for the stories will be uh, on the podcast uh, write-up so people can look for that. And now, uh, what are your plans from here? Because... Clearly, there's more to discover in Hokkaido, but Hokkaido, obviously, you're a foreign correspondent, and so it's not all of your life, and we're hoping that you do more in other parts of Japan, too. So what are you thinking about for your future? Well, this year, um, during the pandemic, I found finally time to write a book. I uh, 
which I, I only co-authored a book about the the Henro, like the the pilgrimage of the 88 temples of Shikoku. Because wow. a German friend of mine, two years back, he walked the whole Henro on foot, obviously, because he's German. So he took about six weeks, 50 days. And like, and he's um, like, he did sometimes like 40 kilometers per day. And oh my God. So, and uh, he was like, yeah, I'm trying to write this book. And I'm like, I, I've, I've spent a week and it's only one page and it's terrible. I said, like, yeah, I can help you. Uh, so I, I took all his videos and all the audio notes that he made and uh, listened to it. And then I kind of walked the Henro in my, you know, in my imagination. So that's what I did in March and April and May when we couldn't really travel. So I walked the whole Henro in my mind and wrote a book in German, unfortunately. So I'm going to translate this next year. And of course, now that I've done this all in my mind, I really want to do it in uh, real life. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, what, what people say about the uh, Shikoku Henro is like, it's only foreigners that walk. Japanese people, they take the bus. So I'm going to do, I'm going to, you know, do as the Japanese people. I'll take the bus. <laughs> and I'll, I'll walk a couple of temples, but um, the Henro is 1,200 kilometers and a lot yeah. of, it is not like the ancient road, beautiful through forest and moss. No, it's along the national highway through tunnels. They are like trucks next to you. So it's a grind. It's a real grind. And uh, so, yeah, um, I think I'll take the easy way out and I'll take the bus. <laughs> well, we would love to have you write some stories for us about that experience even if you write publish your own book experience on that that would be great too <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right agnes thank you again for your time and joining us uh, we appreciate all your insight and um we marvel at the experience that you've had as a very very seasoned journalist um and we do look forward to some, some of your stories that you'll publish with japan Ford in the in the near future i hope <laughs> um in closing do you have any last messages to your readers or to your listeners yeah any suggestions what could be an interesting story <laughs> or any reactions i'd be interested okay i yeah. can come up with a list <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks thank you everyone all right thank, thank you. you thank you agnes thank you agnes thank, thank you, you agnes. Thank you for listening. This was the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Catch you next time.